passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning, everyone. And again, thank you so much for joining us in worship uh, this morning. Uh, uh, This morning, we're going to continue looking at the proper heart posture for us to have as Christians and how we as as believers are, are called to live in the midst of a pandemic. And, and as we've been in this season, I've, I've just been so thankful for, for church history, actually, for uh, the example of those who have gone before us. Because this is not the first crisis. This is not the first hardship or season of, of unique and difficult affliction the church has had to navigate. And we can find uh, rest, and we can find solace, and we can find wisdom in the example of those who have gone before us. And that's especially true when we consider the first century church. The first century church, most of the New Testament, was actually written during uh, seasons of of unbelievable hardship and and trials and tribulations. And while a significant portion of that hardship actually was the result of persecution and and suffering for the sake of the gospel, it would be wrong to conclude that was the only reason why there was hardship. That was the only hardship that people uh, had in view in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Paul says, as much when he's writing or discussing suffering in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, he's, he's talking about the, the suffering that we experience. And some of it may come from others, but also part of it just happens because we are in a broken and fallen creation. He says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation wakes, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the, fear, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Romans reminds us that God doesn't just have persecution in mind when he encourages us to endure through hardship. We are reminded that suffering and all suffering, whether it it comes from the hands of others or or whether it's just because we have sick bodies or or crippled bodies or or from a loss of income for a loss of of opportunity or a thousand different places, this suffering is not a part of God's original good plan for his creation. And we, as his creation, are actually given permission to long for the day when that hardship comes to an end. One of the letters that specifically addresses hardship is 1 Peter. Peter is writing to a church that is scattered. That's relatively significant for us this morning, isn't it? It's scattered because of hardship. And to this church, Peter, writing to them, anchors their hope in the midst of this hardship, in the work of Jesus, and what he has done for them. And this morning, we're going to look at the beginning of Peter, uh, Peter's first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And in this, this song of praise, in these few verses, we see that, that Peter makes one thing abundantly clear. It is as clear today, it is true today as it was 2,000 years ago. Our living hope is greater than life's hardships. Our living hope is greater than life's hardships. As we face our own hardships, Jesus is with us. So let's go ahead and consider this text. See three encouragements that Peter gives to us, gives to the church on on how we can live, how we can thrive, how we can flourish in the midst of hardship. Recall, 
endure and trust. Recall, endure, and trust. Please follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that you have given us your word to know you, and we rejoice that we have been given your spirit who empowers us to live like you, Jesus. And this Palm Sunday, it's different than any of us have ever experienced before. God, we ask that you would help us to join our voices together in worship and praise for what you have done for your people. God, we declare and rejoice, even though we're scattered now and we're longing to be back together, we, we declare that you are Savior and that you are King. And we ask that you would help us now, that you would speak to us, and God, that you would meet us in the midst of our need this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I mentioned just a few moments ago that this, uh, this passage is actually a song of praise, and that's, that's significant, isn't it? Peter is writing to this church that's scattered because of, of difficulty and because of hardship, and the first thing that he says is, God is so good. God is so good. And right here, at the outset, we see just this otherworldly mindset, one that says, God's goodness is not dependent upon my circumstances, God's goodness is not dependent upon my circumstances. At the beginning of this declaration of praise, we see the beginning of our hope is greater than our hardships. And the key is to recall what God has done for us. This is his first encouragement, to recall what God has done for you. This is what verses 3 through 5 are all about. They are Peter recalling and reminding scattered Christians, wherever they are, what God has done for us. Them. Let's work our way through this section verse by verse and see the specifics that we must keep at the forefront of our minds, what we must be intentional in recalling, especially in times of hardship and affliction. First in verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The foundation of our living hope the hope that will help us get through seasons such as this. The foundation is what God has already done in the past. Notice verse 3 is, is looking backward. It's looking at the past, and it's, it's fundamentally the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We've mentioned a couple times this morning already that today is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week where we are, we are intentional in remembering what Jesus has done for us, the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion and his resurrection. And next Sunday, when we gather together, either if it's online or, or if we're able to gather together in some miracle, it will be in celebration of that resurrection. Why 
is it so important that we remember the resurrection? Peter gives us the answer here. Jesus' resurrection is the key to our own resurrection. Not just something that will take place in the future. That is certainly true. Paul tells us that in Colossians chapter 1, that Jesus is the first fruits and the firstborn over all creation. And therefore, we are, are, are guaranteed our own resurrection because of, of Jesus' resurrection, but also a resurrection that takes place right now. That's what Peter has in mind when he says that, we have been, that we, he has caused us to be born again. He's talking about resurrection. He's talking to, about something that was once dead now being alive, a spiritual new rebirth, a resurrection from death to life that happens right now. And it's all because of Jesus' resurrection first. Peter reminds the early church and he reminds us today that if you are struggling to make sense of the world, first, you're not alone. But if you're struggling to make sense of the world, if you feel like your life is falling apart right now, the first thing you have to do is to remember that you have been given new life. This is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, Paul doesn't push, or he doesn't pull any punches here or soften the blow. He says that because of our sin, each of us is dead. And I don't want to sound crass or flippant, or, or like I'm making light of death, but there aren't different degrees of dead. Dead is dead, and before Jesus came, that included each and every one of us, and that's not something you can save yourself from. Dead people can't save themselves. They can't make themselves come alive, and don't miss the, the significance of Paul's word, or Peter's words here in verse 3. He has caused us to be born again. That's intentional. Because Peter is writing to a church that is suffering and he comforts them by saying, not by saying, man, I'm sorry to hear about COVID-19. And I'm sure if God could do something, my goodness, he certainly would do something. No. He doesn't say that at all. He goes the opposite direction and says, yes, you may be suffering, but don't for a second think that God isn't in charge. What does that have to do with God causing us to be born again? This is the heart of assurance. To be born again, to, to find this new life, if that depended, even if it was just a little bit on you and on me, then we could never really be sure that it would stick or that it would be good enough, or that we wouldn't lose it, or we wouldn't just fall short later on somewhere down the road. But God, if God, being rich in mercy, because of his great mercy, grabs your lifeless soul, and without any help from you, breathes new life into it, then you can remain confident that the God who brought your soul to life will keep it until the end. And this is the great mercy of God. Peter literally just says the many mercy of God, the abundant 
overflowing mercy of God. This isn't just a, a little bit of, of mercy, but mercy that is overflowing, that is lavish, that is, that is it's not wasteful because it's endless, but it, but it sure seems that way to us. Whatever you have done in your life, his mercy is more than enough. Recall what God has done for you. There's another piece that we're to recall in verse 4 to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, not only has the work of God in the past brought you new life, which we we see in in verse 3, but it also guarantees you a future inheritance, as we see here in verse 4. Have you ever considered that an inheritance awaits you in the new creation? Paul actually tells us in Romans 8 that the inheritance that awaits us is actually the inheritance that Jesus himself earned by being the only obedient human who has ever lived. But in his grace, in his love, in his great mercy, he shares it with those who are adopted into the family of God. How does Peter describe this inheritance? First, he says that it is imperishable. It will never decay. It will never wear out. A few months ago, Someone from our church gave Crystal and I a bag of potatoes, and uh, I, was, <laughs> I was under the impression that we had eaten all of them, but this past Monday, Crystal and I were cleaning out the garage, and uh, I discovered, surprise, one last potato. But of course, I didn't find it with my eyes. That would have been the, the nice, convenient thing. I instead found it with my hand and with a large squish. It was a potato that had decayed that was not imperishable. It was very, very perishable. And and that's what life is like, isn't it? As time goes on, things decay. Things rot. Things get spoiled. Things get worn out. That seems to be a fact of life. If a family member promises you a family heirloom as a part of your inheritance, you can bet that when it is yours, it will never be as in good of condition as it was or as it is right now. Inheritances decay. And get worn out. That's just part of their nature. But Peter says, not yours. Not yours. Not only is it imperishable, it is undefiled. It will never be touched by the stain of sin. Every week or so, it seems like Crystal and I find a new spot on our walls uh, or our chairs or a different piece of furniture that has the faintest traces of marker or crayon on it. These stains. The other day I found our youngest, he was actually sitting on the hardware floor coloring. Not coloring a piece of paper on a hardwood floor like you would expect, but no, literally coloring the hardwood floor. It seems like we as a, as a family cannot go a single load of laundry without having to use stain remover and, and prayers to get rid of stains from food. And in the same way, in this life, we can, we can get worn out. Things, things decay. And the same is true about getting stained and defiled. Sin affects all of life. And yet Peter says, not so with the inheritance that is awaiting you. He also says that it is unfading. Today, as many of us have seen our retirement or our inheritance fade away, dwindling along with the stock market. Peter's words here strike a chord, don't they? They, they strike 
a deep cord. Unlike worldly wealth, which is so often here today and gone tomorrow, this inheritance will never diminish. It will never fade. It will never lose its value. It doesn't need you to be proactive, constantly watching the markets so that way you can, you can make it out okay at the end. Your inheritance is unfading. Notice what else he says. He says that it is kept in heaven for you. You know, it has been absolutely staggering to see how much has been canceled over the last month or so. March Madness, canceled. Baseball opening day, canceled. Olympics, postponed. Trips to see your family and friends, canceled. Weddings, postponed. Vacations, postponed, canceled. Concerts, canceled. Movies, delayed. TV shows, postponed, ended abruptly. We have learned the hard way over the last month that the guarantees of life aren't really all that guaranteed. But, Paul, but Peter says that your inheritance that is waiting for you will always be waiting for you. There is no uncertainty about its future. The one who keeps it is faithful and he will not let you down. Recall what God has done for you, not just in the past, but also what that means for your future. Now, there's one final aspect of this charge to recall what God has done for you. It's found in verse 5. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I mentioned earlier that assurance is found in the fact that new life comes from God's mercy, not from some place deep within each and every one of us. And that's evident here. God's Work in the past gives us assurance for right now. Peter makes mention of this when he says that we are guarded by God's power. This imagery that, that Peter uses here is, is an image of a soldier helping to evacuate civilians from a hostile area. They will guard and, and will walk with helpless pe people. They will provide the protections they so desperately need. Peter is reminding us that when life attacks, God protects his people. When life attacks, God protects his people. When you are suffering and experiencing what may seem like a literal hell on earth, God will protect you. He never takes a day off. He never lets down his guard. He will protect his people to the end. No matter what comes your way, God will protect you. Sickness may come. Job loss may happen. All of us will face death eventually, but God assures us that nothing worse than death will happen to us, his people. Those who have new life won't experience the second death, but instead that they will receive an inheritance from God. Now that might not seem as great news to us, even if we recognize that this is true cognitively somewhere in our heads, it doesn't really help us in the midst of our suffering right now. So when we are in the midst of suffering, oftentimes we, we don't want to hear the right answers. We just want someone to walk with us in the midst of the pain. And that's what God promises to do when he says that he is going to protect us, that he will walk with us. He will provide us with a shoulder to cry on, that he will carry us when we are not able to continue. So recall what God has done for you and what that means for your future and what that means right now in the midst of your pain. You see, recalling what God has done for us is the key to the second encouragement of this passage in verses six and seven. It's this, endure what God has for you. 
endure what God has for you. The language might be a little off-putting to some of you, so let me put it another way. Do you believe that God is up to something in your hardship and affliction? Do you believe that God can do something good in your life, even as it is in shambles right now? God's work in the past gives us assurance right now. God's power to bring us to new life is at work sustaining our faith right now in this very second. And that matters because as we all know, life is hard. It is filled with trials and they come for everyone. Christians are not immune. So how is it that we can, following Peter's encouragement here, rejoice even in the midst of our sufferings? Well, last week I said that worry and fear of tomorrow, uh, of tomorrow come from this disproportionate view of our problems and how, how they relate to, to Jesus. We can either make our, our problems too big or we can make Jesus too small and therefore we're un, that he's unable to handle them. And using that language then, I think verses 3 and 5 remind us of how big our Jesus is. And how small our problems are in perspective. What do they teach us about trials and hardship? Well, let's see first in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The first thing that sticks out to me from this verse is the very word, trials. Your suffering is not meaningless. This isn't just hardship and suffering with no point. Peter's word choice right here implies that God is up to something. That God is at work underneath the surface in a way that you might not be able to see. Notice another truth from verse 6. Trials hurt. Peter is, is honest and, and he's up front. You have been grieved by various trials. Trials are not fun and that's okay to admit. It's okay to be grieved uh, to, to, to be hurt and feel lost in the midst of your hardship. Peter says that there is no need for a Christianity that denies problems and denies our hardships. Rejoice, yes, but also grieve, and that's okay. Notice what else this verse says about trials. They are temporary. They are temporary. Peter says that these trials are but for a little while. Yes, they may go on longer than we like or, or longer than we imagine that they would. They may have significant side effects and they may be severe, but if we have an inheritance that will not perish, that cannot be defiled, that will not fade and is kept in heaven for us, then by its very nature, a trial has to be temporary. Trials are temporary. What else does this verse say about trials? Well, surprisingly, it says that trials are necessary. Trials are necessary. That's not a fun word to hear, but I think it's an important one, especially right now, and that's why I use the language of endure what God has for you. God has trials for you because they are necessary for you. Why is that? Take a look at verse 7. So that by the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why is it the trials are necessary? It's to see the quality of your faith, of your faith. Contrary to what some may believe, afflictions and hardships are not the place where faith goes to die, but actually where faith flourishes. It is in the trials that we see ourselves for who we really are. And this is certainly something that God has been revealing to me over the past couple of weeks, that I have come face to face with my own selfishness, thinking primarily of myself. I've had to come face to face with my own idols in my life. Have you noticed that all the idols of our culture have disappeared virtually? Sports gone. Movies delayed. Money dwindling. Your work, you have to stay at home. The approval of others, well, you can't go see others. Ironically, these things that can go so under the radar, these other gods that we worship in normal times, they're on full display here in their absence. And God uses trials to expose our hearts for what they really are and where our hopes really lie. And if we are honest, a lot of times the picture that we get back in the midst of those trials, it's uncomfortable. It's hard to look at, but here's the thing. This is also how God can use trials and hardships, perhaps paradoxically to us. This is how God uses those trials and hardships to strengthen our faith. I love the way that one pastor, Jason Meyer, he's a pastor in the Twin Cities, he puts it this way. So you see, suffering is not an embarrassment to the gospel. It is a boast. God uses suffering to bring good when Christ died on the cross, and he's still doing it today. All things work for good for those who love God. We are not just conquerors in suffering. We are more than conquerors. Don't let that phrase, more than conquerors, from Romans 8.37 become a cliche. What does that mean? To understand that more, you have to start by subtracting it. What would it mean to only conquer these things? Well, let's start by looking at the original question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Therefore, Jason says, continuing, conquering would make or mean that threats upon your life from physical harm, lack of food or clothes, physical attack, would not succeed in separating you from the love of Christ. They come up against you, they threaten to separate you from Jesus and his love, and they fail. You've conquered them. But what would it look like to be more than a mere conqueror? It means that God is so strong and so sovereign and so good that these things not only fail to separate us from our God's love, but they actually do the opposite. God has such command over them that they do not take us further from God's love. They actually draw us closer to him. When we lose everything, we find the one thing that we cannot lose. His love becomes our hope and our joy, which cannot be taken or killed. You see, when your idols are revealed, when your selfishness is on display, when you come to realize that, no, I'm actually not a patient person. I just didn't really ever have to wait. Or... No, I'm actually pretty rude to others when things are not going my way. It's just normally things are going my way. When you come to that place of realization in the midst of trials and hardship, you have a choice to make. You can press into Jesus and you can deal with the junk in your life through the power of the Spirit or you can just ignore him. And you can turn your back 
Ignore the conviction of the Spirit. And that is why it is so important for us to endure what God has for us. Because in enduring, we see the evidence that our faith is genuine. Genuine faith is purified in the fires of affliction. But counterfeit faith, on the other hand, is burned up in the flames. So hear Peter's words here very clearly. Endure what God has for you. Prove your faith to be genuine. So we are to recall what God has done for us. We are to endure the trials that God has for us right now. And then, as we see in verses 8 and 9, we trust that God is for us. We trust that God is for us. Even in the trials, don't miss that truth. Verses 8 and 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter ends with this word of encouragement that he has seen in the life of the church. He's writing to the church and he says, I've seen this true of you, that you have not lost sight of the fact that God is for you, that our faith, your faith will help you get through the darkest times of suffering in your life. Your faith, believing without seeing Jesus, trusting him, even when the promises that are in the gospel don't line up with what we see in our lives. Your faith. It's what's in view here. And it's only in our faith and keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus that we can have the right perspective of, of the things that are, that are facing us right now. Because here's the thing about faith. When it comes to faith, it's not really about faith at all. And how much faith you can muster up, the quality of your faith, it's only instead, where is your faith? located. Where have you put your faith? You see, Jesus is the primary reason that we have joy. Our inheritance is definitely a source of joy. There's nothing wrong with rejoicing over the fact that you have an inheritance set aside for you, that you're part of the kingdom of God. But who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for each and every one of us, that's the primary reason we can have joy in our lives. And that knowledge that he will come back to earth someday to, to return for us, that gives us the strength to hold on. J.C. Ryle is a pastor from the 1800s. He, he once said um, that the second coming is the single greatest motivator for holiness in the Christian's life. A second coming is the single greatest motivator for holiness in the Christian's life. His point is that when we don't know that when Jesus is returning, but we do know that Jesus is returning, that it should motivate us to live a life that is ready at all times. Even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of trials, that we should not lose heart, that we should continue to press on to know him because we don't know when he is going to return. And, and I agree with, with him, but I, I want to tweak his statement and say that not only is the second coming the greatest motivator for holiness, but, it, but it's also the greatest motivator to hold on when life seems like it's falling apart. The return of Christ is the single greatest motivator to hold on when your life is falling around you in ashes. To look to Jesus and know that he is going to come back for you. 
that gives you a reason to keep going, no matter how great your pain is, no matter how large your suffering. It gives us perspective that things might not get easy right now. They might not be easy for us to endure, but we can endure. We can rest confident because we know that God is for us. And I'll be honest, I, I can't think of a clearer reminder for us than the week uh, as we stand on the precipice of Holy Week to just remember what Jesus has done for us in the cross. The weight of sin that he took for us that we might become children of God. Our living hope is greater than life's hardships. The hope that we have in Jesus, what he has done for us, what we have to look forward to because of Jesus is greater than, than anything that life can throw at us. And that living hope, is, it's, it's greater than COVID-19. It's greater than unemployment. Our, our living hope is greater because our Jesus is greater. And as you find yourself in the fires of affliction, trust that God is for you and endure what God has for you. For your good, endure it and for the blossoming of your faith. But a question. What if we don't? What if six months from now, three months, however long this is going to last, you look back on this season of life, and as you look at that, you see in the midst of the trials, your faith did not flourish, it did not blossom, it actually wilted. It disappeared. What does that say for you? Does that mean that we have no place in Jesus? Does it mean that we're on the outside looking in? It's a good question. It's an important one. After all, that kind of seems to be what, if God is using trials to reveal the, the quality of our faith and, and counterfeit faith won't last, it's a good question for us to ask. So what do we do with that? The answer is found by looking at the life of the author of this letter. First Peter, written by the Apostle Peter, we're reminded in each of the Gospels of what takes place in the week of Holy Week. Each of the Gospels reminds us that Peter denies Jesus. Peter is in the fires of affliction. And rather than having a faith that comes out unscathed or, or comes out tested and, and stronger than it was before, it shrivels up. And it's not just Peter, it's the other disciples as well. All of the disciples flee and, and leave Jesus, abandoning him in, their greatest, in his greatest hour of need. If there's a, a, a greater example of faith withering in trials, I, I can't think of one. And we're actually given it by the author of this letter. But what did they do? Did they despair? Maybe for a little while, but defeat didn't have the final say, did it? The victory of Resurrection Sunday, the 
victory that we're going to celebrate next week, it was bigger than their despair. It was bigger than their defeat. It was bigger than all of their failures. And the same is true for us as well. You see, our our living hope is greater than life's hardships. Our Savior's love is greater than your failures. And as we find ourselves in this season, let's be a people who cling to our living hope that we would recall what he has done for us, that we would endure what he has for us, that we would trust that he is for us. Let's pray. Father, we say thank you for the message of the gospel. Thank you for the great love that is on display in it for people like us. Jesus, we ask in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering, that you would be present with us. Help us to be a people that honor you, that that trust in you, that in the fires of affliction, our faith is proved genuine. That it does not wilt, but it flourishes and blossoms. Help us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.